Okay, yeah, thank you very much, Ivo, for the invitation and the introduction. So I'm going to talk about trauma on trial today, survival and witnessing at um, the ICTR and Rwanda's Gachacha court. So, and as Ivo already mentioned, the first um, part of the presentation is based on a, a journal article that was published in the International Journal of Law and Social Democracy last year, and a shorter version in the Paragraph Handbook of uh, Criminology in the Global South. So in the second part, I want to link the methodology that I used in the paper um, and explain more about the methodology, how I use it in my Leverhulme project and also reflect a bit on preliminary, uh, preliminary observations that I made during my recent fieldwork in Rwanda. I only came back on Thursday, so bear with me if it's all not yet quite ordered. Um, so... The paper... Um, compares a survivor testimony that I conducted in 2014 with the ICTR case prosecutor versus Atanase Seromba. Both are related to the crimes that happened here at Nyangwe Church, which is around two hours um, away from Kigali, the capital in Rwanda. And in 1994, around 2,500 people were killed at that church. And the church was bulldozed down while people were still trapped in it. And the priest, Father um, Atanasis Seromba, um, was believed um, to have ordered the um, bulldozing down of the church. And he was indicted at the ICTR for crimes against humanity and genocide. So what I'm, going, what I'm doing in the paper is I compare, I want to see how the diff different narratives about the same crime that happened at that church um, emerge and how we can understand the differences in the narratives. And the table that you can see here gives you already an um, overview of how uh, differently is um, the, the chamber, uh, the tribunal and uh, Alois in, the, in his testimony uh, with me talks about what happened. So Alois remembers that on the 15th of April 1994, um, people were killing the whole day. But at some point he managed to escape during the night. And he says, I knew how to swim, but I wanted the river to kill me. I chose to be drowned instead of being killed by machetes. After what I saw here, dead bodies everywhere, people hacked into pieces, I really wanted to die. So the chamber two of the ICTR talks in a very different way of what happened. Um, the judgment states, after this meeting, Father Atanasi Seromba ordered the Interhambwe, the militia, to launch attacks to kill the Tutsis. Following his orders, an attack was launched against the refugees by the Interhambwe, militiamen, gendarmes, and communal police officers, equipped with traditional weapons and firearms, causing the death of numerous refugees. So in the following, I want to explain how we can understand the differences in these um, narratives that emerge. So the aim of the paper is to contrast the recollection of a traumatic experience with the production of legal meaning in order to understand how different narratives of the same atrocity emerge. So I use the approach reading into and reading against that I borrow from uh, Shoshana Thelman, and particularly her, her book, The Judicial Unconsciousness. So she reads trauma into uh, Hannah Arendt's analysis of the Eichmann trial, and she also reads the Tolstoy's uh, novel, The Kreutzer Sonata, against the O.G. Uh, Simpson case in the US. 
So her approach is very um, helpful because it, it includes trauma and narratives. So then we can obviously ask why is this important at all? So I argue that what must be heard in court cannot be articulated by legal language. Law relates to an injury that it seeks to address and fix, but cannot find legal resolution, and I'm going to show that. Trauma study and a narrative perspective on trial produces new knowledge and insights into a legal phenomenon. And it also makes visible the excluded, the marginal, and the gaps that cut through traumatic testimony. And this is really revealed by reading trauma into the witness stand and the testimony, which I will show. Um, so the argument is that um, different narratives unfold because there are different structural preconditions in which they unfold. So I borrow here from Foucault's, Michel Foucault's idea of the subject position of the witness. Um, the survivor in the testimony is constructed as such through what I call the modes of testimony in which the traumatic event can unfold. Um, so modes, and that's borrowed from Lawrence uh, Langer's work on uh, Holocaust testimonies, says that for those testimonies it's important to have a dialogical relationship, the reaffirmation of a story and the secret password. So when these conditions are fulfilled then the testimony can, a traumatic testimony can unfold. So he also sees the testimony as a social process and as a storytelling to an emphatic other. That means that the story is always validated by the listener and never questions. So the ICDR is very different. The witness falls under the rules of procedure and evidence. So already in the very beginning of the trial, witness statements are pressed in a very legal uh, form. So for example, when the investigator of the tribunal goes into the field, um, in order to um, collect evidence, they will have um, forms um, that, that say um, who was there at what time, when and where. And that also means that in, in uh, the end, the witnesses are only defined as probative or exculpatory evidence in the rules of procedure. And in short, it means witnesses are desubjectified de uh, in comparison to the testimony where the survivor comes into existence as survivor because of the modes of testimony. Um, <coughs> so in order to understand how this is possible, um, we need to talk a bit more about the char characteristics of narratives and also the traumatic element of, of narratives. So usually, narratives have a structural and formal feature, uh, which is called the Aristotelian configuration, and that goes back um, to French philosopher Paul Ricoeur. And he says that narratives, they have continuity, they have coherence, and a meaningful whole and a closure that is uh, brought about by implotment. Um, and the plotment is in, based in narrative time, so that means it's linear. So we always have a beginning, a middle, and an end of any story. Like even when we have journal articles, we always have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So the traumatic narrative is very different, because trauma does not fit into this conventional uh, form, and rather attests to an endless impact on life, and that we will see uh, a bit later in Alois' testimony. So the traumatic narratives, they fail to integrate the traumatic occurrence, into the plot, the implotment. So the analysis shows that the traumatic experience is eradicated from the witness stand and replaced by a linear, chronological, factual and precise narrative account to support the legal meaning making of the court. So 
this table shows the ICTR narrative on one side and on the other hand Alois narrative about what happened at Nyanga Church in April 1994. So at the ICTR, the extraordinary events are pressed into a routine form and given a very civilized form. When the judgment uh, talks about um, Interhamwer using traditional weapons or talks about refugees being killed. Whereas, as I said in the very beginning, Alois refers to the fact that he rather wanted to drown himself, kill himself in the river instead of being hacked into pieces by machetes. So the impact on his life um, also becomes visible when he says later in the testimony that every year at commemoration we bury remains and every year we find bodies and we dig new graves. So the cross-examination is done in a form of a law-type statement that invites negotiation of meaning with falsification and verification. So there are only yes or no answers. So here in this example, the um, prosecution asks the witness, do you admit having made this statement on Friday? And the witness said, yes, I can confirm having made the statement. And then the prosecution goes on asking basically the same question, um, just wanting to know yes or no. So this means that the prosecution here wants to falsify or verify what has been said before. In the testimony, it is very different because he would never ask closed questions. So I would ask, for example, how do you remember what happened in 1994 at the Nyangwe Church? Um, so this open form encourages, is encouraged to the intimate relationship between the narrator um, and the listener. So in the ICTR, um, they are positive and objective facts that allow true and false dichotomies <coughs> to emerge in the narratives. So here, for example, the defense counsel um, asked the witness, witness, can you explain to the chamber the circumstances and the atmosphere in which the church was destroyed? Did you observe what happened? And then the witness says, there was total chaos outside. People were waiting for people to come out to say that they could kill them. People were bloodthirsty. And then the defense counsel wants to um, know more and says, witness, can you be more precise? When you say people were bloodthirsty, what do you mean? And then the witness says, when I say that people were bloodthirsty, I'm referring to those who carried out killings. When they started killing people, they didn't stop. They came to kill them and no one could stop them from executing the orders they had received. So obviously here, the um, defense counsel wants to show that um, the defendant, Atanasi Siromba, was not in a position to stop the killings because the people were bloodthirsty. So Aloy's testimony, um, in contrast, is very different. He uh, recounts a couple of meetings happening between the 10th of April and the 13th of April. Um, and he says that um, he was going into the church and said he, um, he said, I kept myself in the corner of the entrance and my children were gathering near the altar. They did not know that I had entered. I kept in that corner all the time. My fellow businessmen bet on my life. So, and then at some point on the 14th of April, he manages to leave. Um, and maybe I should do this. Um, he manages to finally leave the compound and the church. And he... Um, goes to his brother in Gitarama, and there he says it was somehow peaceful because they hadn't started killing. But the next day they started killing, so we went to the marshlands where so many Tutsi were. At that point in the testimony, we need to take a break 
because Alois gets very upset. And the marchlands, in the marchlands, a lot of Tutsi were hunted down and hacked into pieces uh, and left to die in agony. So his testimony here shows really the death of darkness, what it means to survive and what it means to see his own children um, being killed in the church. And then to think that he was in safety when he arrived at his brother's house and then had to learn that they were starting killing there the next day as well. At the ICTR, there is a chronological sequencing of events that reduces them to a singularity of objective and binary facts. So the judgment, for example, um, details the events in a very exact chronological uh, order from 6th April to the 16th of April. The judgment also states that they found um, a lot of um, inco inconsistencies in the witness statements. They say, for example, the testimony lacks precision with respect to the sequence of the events, um, he was unable to recall the exact time of this, this arrival or the arrival of the bulldozers that bulldozed down the church whilst people were still inside, or contradictions as to the order to bring in the bulldozers. So this seems, when you compare this to what Alois says, rather random to, to say that a witness statement is not consistent because people can't remember the order in which the bulldozers were brought in. So, and this is really because narrative time does not exist here. So events are narrated without employment or causal link. And we can see that here when Alois talks about um, a meeting happening on the 14th of April. And then he says the next day, on the 15th of April, many cars, trucks and buses came full of Hutu. But after the meeting, two of the guys who were also in the meeting came to the church to collect Hutu women who were married to Tutsi men. They were calling them to come out. So here he talks about the meeting that takes place on the 14th of April and then again on the 15th of April. So the meeting only took place at one of those days. So and it shows that his reference point is the arrival of the trucks with Hutus because the Tutsi in the church didn't know exactly that they would be killed with the arrival of the, these new forces. So the analysis contributes to the critical work on the extent to which international trials write history. They reveal ways in which the fragments of the past are sidelined and at worst silenced. The approach of reading against shows how witness, the witness then speaks to the crime, whereas the testimony speaks to the traumatic experience. It reveals the silences that cut through the testimony that are not heard in court. The approach of reading into demonstrates that the witnesses are judged by the credibility of the narrative account that oftentimes lacks consistency. And the Chamba two in the Saramab case found many inconsistencies. So um, Nancy Combs has written about inconsistencies in international trials and says this is a major problem for international criminal law. And she says that those inc inconsistencies relate to what she frames as um, facts that can't possibly be forgotten, like the date, distance, uh, where someone was, at what time, and who was there. However, the analysis here and the testimony of Alois shows that it's exactly those um, facts that she says are impossible to forget that are forgotten, because the narrative, um, the traumatic narrative is not integrated into the employment. So it, the analysis also questions the claims that truth um, or testimony heals or is a catharsis for victims. 
Courts do not provide the testimonial holding space for traumatic narratives to unfold because it's an adversarial system and it's always about um, judging the credibility of the witness. 